the Gospel of Mark, we will explore that precious story that we just sang about. Open your Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you were to walk into any bookstore or library in this country, you would find shelf after shelf after shelf lined with biographies of different people, all kinds of people. You can pull one down and begin to read, and you will read about the lives of famous explorers and thinkers and presidents, generals and movie stars and singers and businessmen and mobsters and politicians and preachers and thousands of people you've never even heard of before. Biographies are such an interesting window into the past because we can see how things were through the eyes of someone who really lived them. And I really enjoy reading biographies. I think it's a good way to come to understand a person, what they thought and their dreams and their desires and ambitions. It follows, of course, the heartaches and the tragedies as well as their achievements. One thing that's interesting about a biography is that as you read it, you come to understand, sympathize with, and and even feel like you come to know the person about whom it is written. That is never more true than for those who author biographies. People who write biographies often will attest that they come to really feel like they know the person about whom they're writing. After all, they spend most of their time poring over personal correspondence like letters or, or diary notes, trying to understand who this person was, how they thought, how they felt about what they were experiencing. And biographers will, will say this quite plainly. In fact, one, uh, one biographer named Richard Brookheiser, who's written several biographies of the Founding Fathers, understands what it means to know and to some degree love his subject. He said it this way, I familiarize myself with my subject's career, his time. Then I delve. That's the key word. Then I delve. Trying to really understand why this person did this and not that. Why he could tell a joke. How, how, who did he hate? Did he believe in God? And then he says, then when I've told the whole story, found the drama, and said why it matters, then I sent him away. After completing a biography on Governor Morris, a general, a revolutionary politician, Brookheiser said to his wife, how can I let him go? He, he had created such a relationship, at least he felt, with this man who had died several hundred years before. And again, as a reader of biographies, not a writer, I can understand through the pages a little about this person, sympathize with them. And when it's a true story, all the more powerful. Well, the New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are not biographies in the modern sense of the term. In fact, as we study Mark, we will see ways in which it is not like modern biographies. Yet nevertheless, it records accurately the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in that sense, yes, it does give us a window into the past. It does tell us of someone highly significant. And it gives us a glimpse into their life. Because of that, I believe through the Gospels, we can come to know the God who is Christ. The God the Son who came in the flesh. Not only can we know him, we can love him more deeply As we study the Gospel of Mark together, we have a rare glimpse into the life of someone 
who is so significant. But here's the nice thing about the Gospels, too. We don't just feel like we come to know Christ in them. We can know Christ. You see, unlike reading a biography of Alexander the Great or Napoleon Bonaparte, those men are dead. Jesus lives. He's alive. And we can have a relationship with him. So shouldn't we want to know him, to study him, and then to follow him? It's really what I want to get across in this introductory sermon on the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the chief character, not only of the Gospel of Mark, but of all things, even your life. It's all about him. And if it is about him, then we should desire to follow him and be like him. Now, this morning, we're going to kind of give an overview of the Gospel of Mark and just get our feet wet, if you will, trying to understand the, the basics, who, what, when, where of this Gospel. Because of that, there's a lot of information I want to cover. So put on your thinking caps, whatever you need to do to try and keep up. We've got a couple or a lot of information, but I don't want it to just be information. Again, the subject of the Gospel of Mark is the most glorious subject imaginable. And we want to give honor and worship to him who is worthy. But to do that, we need to familiarize ourselves with the Gospel of Mark. What do I want us to grasp? Well, let me break it down like this. Number one, I want us to understand the background of Mark's gospel. The background of Mark's gospel. You know, whenever you pick up a book to read, any book, you already have some awareness of what's in it, don't you? At least generally. Uh, usually you look at a book and you see the cover, you see the title, you see the author. You might have, there might be some other note on there, a subtitle perhaps, that gives you a clue of what you're about to read. For instance, if you pick up a book that says the history of potato farming in America, you have some idea of what the subject is going to be about. I don't know that it would be that interesting, but at least you know what you're getting into by the title. Or maybe it's the author. You pick up a book by a well-known author, one that you, you enjoy or, or respect, and you say, oh, this is going to be a good book. I know this author. And in you go. Well, with Mark's gospel, we need to understand what it's about, that, that background, who wrote it, what does it cover? Well, these questions are best dealt with here at the beginning as we start our study of Mark's gospel. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The Bible says, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That could easily be the title. It's almost like that's the title page. If you had opened up, and I don't know that Mark's gospel in the original scroll looked like this, but I imagine if we put it in a modern book form, you'd open the first page and it would say, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, colon, and the rest follows. It's like a title for the whole, the whole gospel. It tells us a couple of things. First of all, it tells us that this is the good news. What is contained in these pages to follow is the good news about Jesus Christ. This man who walked the hillsides of Galilee, who appeared in the temple, who challenged the Pharisees, it's about his life. He is the subject of Mark's gospel. Not only does it tell us who the subject is, it also tells us something of Mark's approach. He says this Jesus is the Son of God. So right up front, no mystery where, where Mark lands on this question. 
He's not trying to be some kind of unbiased reporter who sort of gives just the facts and then you decide. He's telling you, I believe, I've come to see that Jesus is the Son of God. And what I'm going to show you in this gospel will lead you to the same conclusion. He's telling us right away who who he is. As such, Mark deals with the loftiest topic imaginable, Jesus. After all, if Abraham Lincoln or John D. Rockefeller or Isaac Newton are worthy subjects of a biography, then certainly Jesus is more. So let's get into the details, the who, what, when, where, and how of the Gospel of Mark. We begin first with the author. The author. Now, if you look up from verse 1, and depending on how your Bible is laid out, you will see above that the heading for the whole Gospel, which says, The Gospel According to Mark. Again, we have those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one is given its title from its author. Now, this title, the Gospel according to Mark, goes way, way back. The earliest manuscripts we have include this ascription at the top. It's according to Mark. But that doesn't tell us much about this man. Who is he? After all... When you you start listing off the names of the disciples, Matthew we know, John we know, but where's Mark? He wasn't one of the twelve. So who was he? Where did he come from? Well, the first time we formally meet this man named Mark, he's introduced in Acts 12, verse 12, and there he's called John Mark. He had two names. John Mark. John was his Jewish name, Mark his Roman name. So it's very possible he had a Roman father and a Jewish mother, in which case that's where he got both of his names. Now, John Mark was not a a combined name. It's not like somebody who may go by Jim Bob or something like that. They were two names. You would either call him John or you would call him Mark, depending on if you were a Roman or a Jew. And later on, as we read in the, the New Testament, He's consistently called Mark later on. So obviously his his Roman name stuck. That was what everyone knew him by. When we meet his family in Acts 12.12, his mother is actually the hostess for the early church. When Peter is released from prison, when he wants to find the gathering of the church, he goes to John Mark's house. And there he finds the assembled church. So obviously... Mark, at that point, must have been a believer, and so must his mother have been. Now, Mark, the thing that's very interesting about this man, he was a personal associate of Paul, of Peter, and Barnabas. Barnabas was his cousin, we learn from the New Testament. So why, why does he write the gospel? What, what do we know about John Mark, other than the fact that he grew up in Jerusalem, and that was apparently a believer. Well, we know that, number one, he was an eyewitness to Christ, to some degree. Now, that doesn't mean he was with the Twelve, tracking around Galilee, but he at least witnessed some of Jesus' life. He was not one of the Twelve, but it's likely that the same house where Peter went and knocked on the door after being released from prison may very well have been the same house that Jesus shared the the Last Supper in. In fact, it seems pretty likely. In which case, John Mark may have been hanging around during the night Jesus was crucified and arrested. 
I, I kind of imagine, and again, this is, this is not scripture, but my imagination working here. I, I kind of imagine as Jesus is sharing the, the upper room, that great last supper with his disciples, that John Mark's ears pressed up against the wall trying to hear kind of what's going on in the next room over there. Something big is happening. In fact, later on in Mark's gospel, there's a weird story in, in Mark 14 where Jesus is being arrested in the garden, and then suddenly there's this young man that shows up, and he's wrapped in a linen uh, sheet, and one of the Roman guards tries to grab him, and he flees. And it's like, what's that doing in there? And nothing more is said about it. A lot of people believe, and I think they're right, that that might have been Mark. And in fact, it's sort of a little nod to him in the book. So again, let my imagination run wild here a little bit. But I imagine that as Jesus and his disciples are having their last supper in Mark's house, they depart and head out to the the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark perhaps was roused by this and said, I want to know what's going on, and follows them out. And that's how he himself ended up in the garden. So he was at least somewhat of an eyewitness to part of Jesus' life. Not only that, we also learn that John Mark was a companion of Paul. Again, I told you there's lots of information here, but... Paul, whenever he was setting out on his first missionary journey in Acts 13, took with him Barnabas, and with them they grabbed John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. And the three of them set out across Cyprus and then eventually into, uh, into Turkey. Well, along the way, the Bible tells us that John Mark left. He deserted Paul and Barnabas. And the Bible never tells us exactly why he does that. That has led to almost endless speculation on what happened. You know, was John Mark homesick? Or maybe, maybe there was some cowardice in him. Maybe he was afraid of the dangers that were on the road for them. Maybe there was some theological reason that he left. We're not told. All we know is he didn't go the course. He didn't stay with, John, with uh, Paul and Barnabas during that first missionary journey. Then, when Paul gets ready to set out on a second journey, Barnabas suggests, why don't we take John Mark again? And Paul vehemently says, no, he's not going. So whatever happened on the first journey, Paul is pretty sure he doesn't want to repeat it. And so the division between Paul and Barnabas is so severe that eventually Paul takes Silas and goes, and Barnabas takes Mark. So there's this divide that takes place. Now, we don't know exactly how many years, probably a couple of decades pass. And Paul writes 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4... Verse 11, Paul writes, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. So apparently, somewhere along the way, the the fractured relationship between Paul and Mark is mended. And the two are united together. So much so that Paul says he's useful in ministry. So John Mark had this, this distinction of being a companion of Paul during his journeys. Not only that, he is a colleague of Peter, the great apostle, one of the three who walked closest with Jesus. Apparently, John Mark had a relationship with him. In fact, you can, you can see it here in, in uh, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So obviously there must have been some close relationship between Peter and Mark, so much so that he calls him my son. 
Now, the Bible doesn't give us many details about this time period, but the early church fathers wrote a lot, and they tell us and fill in some of these blanks. Now, they're not inspired, so we don't trust them indubitably, but nevertheless, the church fathers do tell us that Mark and Peter ended up in Rome together. Eventually, Peter was executed there. Nevertheless, it was there, and probably there, that Mark got the inside story from Peter. In fact, most people believe that the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's recollection of Jesus' life and ministry. Mark is just the pen man. He's just the scribe who's writing down Peter's memories. So what we get in the gospel of Mark is really a Peter perspective of Jesus. Kind of interesting. In fact, listen to what Eusebius, the third century church historian, had to say. He said, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not, not in order of the things said and done by the Lord. He goes on to say, Mark did nothing in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For one thing he gave attention to leave nothing out which he heard and to make no false statement in them. In other words, Mark took what Peter said and he accurately recorded it. In fact, one historical reconstruction I heard is that Peter may have preached the life of Christ in Rome. Meanwhile, Mark is in the back writing it down. Which I like to think maybe that's how it took place. Because certainly Mark, or excuse me, Peter would have been preaching about the life of Jesus. And it makes sense. Like that story, for instance, we mentioned in Mark 14 about the young man fleeing from the garden. You almost picture Peter preaching that story and sort of winking at Mark in the process, you know, like, here's a little side note for, for the guy in the back. Also, one more little detail that you may not know about Mark is that one of the early church documents that we have that has survived calls Mark Stump Fingers as his nickname. And it's apparently because he had very short fingers proportioned to the rest of his body. So, if you didn't learn anything else about Mark this morning that you didn't already know, now you know he was called Stumpfingers. Nevertheless, we, we learn about the author, Mark, but we also learned the setting. The setting here is probably Rome. That's where P Mark wrote Peter's thoughts. That's where the church fathers consistently placed both Peter and Mark is there in the city of Rome. And I think there's internal evidence in the Gospel of Mark, which proves this as well. As we study this little book, you'll see that whenever a, a phrase or a tradition that would have been known to the Jews comes up, Mark will explain it. And it's like he's talking to a Gentile audience saying, listen, you, know, you wouldn't understand this because you didn't grow up in Palestine, you know, in, in Israel, but here's how this works. So it seems that he's talking to a Gentile Roman audience and kind of explaining to them things about Israel and about the Holy Land they wouldn't understand. Well, if the setting, if it was written in Rome, who is it written to? We don't really know. And in fact, I would suggest that the Gospel of Mark really is written to all believers at all time and all places. I don't think there was a one specific audience that uh, Mark was writing this thinking, oh, this is going to go to such and such a people for their particular needs. Now, having said that, there's a lot in Mark that teaches people how to follow Christ in persecution. 
So clearly he was thinking that his audience might be facing some suffering here in the future, which I would say is applicable to all Christians, all times, and all places. So I think the destination of Mark's gospel is all believers. We also want to talk about the date. So we talked about the author, the setting, and then the date. When was this book written? Again, we don't have a hard and fast date to go by. Uh, again, Mark's gospel doesn't come with a title page with a copyright date, you know, in bold. So when was it written? Well, we don't know for sure. Probably in the mid-60s A.D. When, that's when Peter and Mark likely would have been in Rome. So it seems to me that it was probably in the mid-60s somewhere that Peter and Mark get together and record this gospel. Now, um, there's not a whole lot of evidence that I can marshal to show that date. Now, liberal theologians have often suggested that Mark's gospel was the first because it was the shortest. And they will claim that the other gospels, Matthew, or Matthew and Luke, borrowed from Mark's gospel. Now, we'll say more about that in a few moments. I think, it's, I think that idea is faulty for several reasons. Uh, I, one of the things they're going off of is, well, there are places where Mark and Luke sound like, or uh, Matthew and Luke sound like Mark. And my answer is, one, maybe one of the reasons they all sound alike is because they're all telling the same story. Now, there could be some literary dependence. It's possible that Mark, for instance, had read Matthew before. Or that Matthew had read Mark or Luke or whichever came first. So there could have been some you know, reading of each other. But it's not necessarily to say that they borrowed from each other. Or that they you know, stole ideas from each other. Again, I'll say more about that in a few moments. The point is, here's the background of the book. You know, just whenever you pick up any book, you're, you're wondering, what's the background? You know, what time period is this book written in? You know, if it's a if historical fiction, for instance, uh, you might want to know, well, where is this supposed to take place? In America, in England, in China, in Africa? You know, what time period is it supposed to take place in? Is it modern times? Is it ancient, the ancient, uh, you know, knights and ar shining armor? Is this, uh, all of those little details, that's background, and that's what we're getting here. Who's the author? Where's it, where's it going? But I don't want to stop there. I also want to point out the characteristics of Mark's gospel. So number two, the characteristics of Mark's gospel. You know, one of the questions that pops up whenever we read the Bible, anybody who reads the Bible, is to, to ask, why four gospels? Why do we need four books all overlapping to some degree or another? Why don't we just have a single book to tell the story of Jesus? Well, I think part of the answer might be found in the Bible itself. It says in Deuteronomy 19.15 that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is confirmed. We, in the case of the Gospels, have four witnesses, all telling of the life of Christ. And so four eyewitness testimonies is certainly better than one. Furthermore, by having four Gospels, it really gives us a vibrant and well-rounded picture of the life of Jesus. Rather than seeing his life from only one perspective, we see him from four. And yes, there is overlap, which we would expect, but each one provides something unique. They add detail and uh, 
observations while never contradicting one another. It's really quite remarkable. And that leads us to what is called the synoptic problem. The word synoptic means to be seen together. And usually the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels because they seem to view Jesus' life sort of from the same perspective. John is, John is a little different than all three of them. They're called the synoptic Gospels. So what is the synoptic problem? It's basically this. If we have three Gospels, why are they so similar, and yet why are they so different? Why are they so similar and why so different? And that's an interesting thing. For instance, the critic will look at the Bible and say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. This gospel says this. This one says this. They're hopelessly wrong. Like, obviously, it's just a mess. For instance, in Matthew 20, Jesus meets two blind men on his way to Jerusalem and heals them. In Mark 10 and Luke 18, same story, those passages only mention one man. So you have this contradiction, right? Matthew mentions two. Luke and Mark mention one. Who's right? Who's wrong? See, that assumes that somebody's right and somebody's wrong, doesn't it? Just because Mark and Luke don't mention two doesn't mean there weren't two, right? Just because they're not named or, or mentioned that they were there, if there was one, there could have been two as well, right? There could have been another. And this leads us to the, the practice of harmonizing. You see, when we harmonize the text, we're not trying to explain anything away. We're trying to see how they fit. One text mentions one person, another mentions two. How do we harmonize? Well, there must, maybe, there must have been two. Although one of them is the central character in the exchange. That's one half of the synoptic problem. Why are they so different? On the other coin, uh, other side of the coin, is how similar they are. Yes, there, there's differences, but why are they so close? And this is where authors have suggested literary dependence, that Mark must have copied from uh, Matthew, or Matthew, probably Matthew from Mark, and et cetera. And so everybody's copying from one another. It's the same thing that if you were a teacher, and two students come in, and they turn in an essay, and yeah, there's a few differences, but they're the same essay. What do you think happened? Well, one of these kids copied from the other, or else they both copied from somebody else. And see, that's what uh, some would say about the Gospels is, well, you know, they're copying from one another. Again, there's nothing wrong. I mean, it's, it's very likely that Peter had read Matthew's Gospel, especially if Matthew was the first, which is what I'm inclined to believe. But this doesn't mean that they were cutting and pasting and copying from one another's work. The real reason for the similarity between the Gospels is their eyewitness testimony. They're saying the same thing. I mean, if they were... If they were saying two vastly different things, we would say, somebody's wrong here. Yet, the synoptic problem actually shows us how the Gospels are right. Because they're different, but the same. If they were too different, then we would wonder what story they're even telling. If they were too much the same, we might think, well, they're, they're copying. But we have enough difference. I think what this reveals is a case of uh, heads I win, tails you lose sort of thinking. In other words, if for the skeptic, for the critic of the Bible, they look at it and say, well, if they're too, too similar, they say, well, it was copied, it's false. If they're too different, then they say, well, they're contradictory, it's wrong. So it's like, 
I think it just tells us that nothing will satisfy the critic of the Bible, right? They're always going to have a problem with accepting it. Well, it's true that each of the Gospels, while covering much of the same ground, does so in a unique way. And that's what makes the that's what makes the Gospel of Mark different from Matthew or Luke. Well, what makes it different? What characteristics do we see in this second gospel? Well, let me point out a few of them. Number one is brevity. Brevity, which means shortness. The gospel of Mark is considerably shorter, if you'll notice, than Matthew or Luke. Uh, Mark tends to compress events. For example, the temptation of Jesus is mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels. In Mark, uh, excuse me, in Matthew and Luke, it's given between 11 and 13 verses. In Mark, it's given two, compressed. And so Mark is giving us a, a more of a shortened uh, version, if you will, of the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean he's abbreviating or abridging it, but it does mean that he's giving us a, generally, he takes a more concise style. Rather than adding, he tends to scale back. Uh, Luke contains a lot of parables that no one else records. Matthew has lots of long speeches where Jesus preaches to the crowds. Mark doesn't have that. It's much shorter, and that's probably wise because he doesn't have those lengthy sections. So it's marked by brevity. The Gospel of Mark is also characterized by a fast-paced style, a fast-paced style. This, is, I think, is one of the reasons Mark is shorter. is because it's action-packed. So if, you're, if you like action, then the gospel of Mark is the gospel for you. Because the focus is on the action of Jesus, his work, his movement, the drama of his life, not necessarily his teaching. Now, his teaching is there in the gospel of Mark, but it's an action-packed gospel. And this is one of the reasons Mark doesn't include those discourses. He keeps the pace moving at a breakneck speed. Throughout the second gospel, the key word is immediately. He uses this Greek word translated immediately over and over and over again. The word immediately appears 50 plus times in the New Testament. 40 of them are in the Gospel of Mark. So more than anybody else, he's using this term. It's kind of like if you use the word suddenly. If I'm telling a story and I want to really bring you into the speed of it, I'm telling you this happened and then this happened and suddenly this person came out of nowhere. Suddenly, the car was upon me. Suddenly, and it kind of gives this urgency, this, this energy to the telling of the story. And that's what we have in the Gospel of Mark, this fast-paced narrative of Jesus' life. Uh, one commentator refers to Mark having an allegro style. I really like that. Because if you're a musician, you know that the word allegro in music means fast. Like if you see a, a piece of music and it's marked allegro in the top corner, it doesn't just mean fast, like play it at a really quick pace. It also means play it in a lively way. That's what it really means. It's, it's not just go as fast as you can and you know keep flipping the pages as fast as you can go. It means play it in a way that just has life and exuberance and energy. And that's how Mark's gospel is, an allegro narrative. The Gospel of Mark is also characterized by vividness and detail. You know, yes, Mark is shorter. Yes, he moves at a rapid pace. And yet he adds so much vividness to what he says. 
In fact, even stories that Matthew and Mark and Luke all record, oftentimes Mark adds the most intimate details. Whereas Matthew might say Jesus touched the person. Or Luke might say he, he extended his hand. Luke will, or Mark, excuse me, will make it even more personal. You know, he, he, he held her by the hand and lifted her up. And, and adds sort of this vividness to what he's telling. It's almost like he's really bringing us into the moment. Helping us to see. Again, whenever I was in school and, and in English composition, uh, that was one of the things. Is, is you, can, you can write a story that just has all your basic verbs. Like, he went here, he went there, they walked, he ran. But then you can spice it up by adding more vivid terms. He sprinted instead of he ran. You know, he ambled instead of he walked. And that's kind of what Mark does in spicing it up a little bit and telling the story in a more vivid way. Uh, Again, I have lots of examples. William Hendrickson includes several pages worth of examples of how Mark is so vivid. But another feature that puts this fast-paced vividness on display in the Gospel of Mark is not one that you will see as we study the book, probably. It's called the historical present. The reason you won't see it is because English translations kind of gloss over it. Sometimes when Mark is recording in Greek, he will use the present tense to tell a story. Now, obviously, it's a past tense event, but he uses a present to tell it. So it would be like this. Uh, Mark says, Jesus is getting into the boat, and he and his disciples are rowing out into the sea. Now, again, when, if you're an English translator, you say, well, that just sounds a little odd. Let's put it in the past tense. You know, Jesus climbed into the boat, and his disciples rowed out to sea instead of is getting into the boat. But you see, the effect is basically like that of a sideline reporter. It's almost like you're getting the report as it's happening. You know, look right behind me. Jesus is getting into the boat as we speak. He and his disciples are setting out into the sea. I was talking with my dad this week about growing up, and and he was telling me about the the two broadcast uh, reporters for the Cincinnati Reds, Joe Nuxall and Marty Brenneman, who were like the radio voice of the Cincinnati Reds. And if you're not able to watch the game, and all you have is a radio, you have to have this broadcast team giving you the play-by-play, telling you, you know, what's happening, who's up at the plate, uh, who's on base. And these guys were, and, and the, the world of baseball has a lot of colorful broadcast personalities because they would have their own little phrases and their own little jargon that they would use and, and expressions, and it was kind of a fun thing. But what are they doing as they're telling you that they're painting a picture in your mind? You know, okay, he's up at base. Bases are loaded. You know, he's, he's up at the plate. Um, everything kind of in real time, like it's happening right in front of you. That's what Mark does in his gospel. He kind of transports us into the moment and says, Jesus is climbing up into the boat. He's, he's doing this. He's reaching out to touch this leper. And he uses this historical present to help do that. See, these are some of the characteristics of Mark's gospel, this fast-paced style. Now, I think we'll see some of these as we work our way through Mark. And this is one of the reasons, honestly, I'm excited about preaching this book, because it's exciting. It's fast-paced. It's vivid. But another reason I'm excited about preaching 
the Gospel of Mark is number three, the themes of Mark's Gospel. The themes of Mark's Gospel. You know, when we're studying a book of the Bible, we're always on the lookout for themes that the author is trying to emphasize because that tells us what's important to him, what he's trying to drive at. Uh, this is where we get the theology of Mark's gospel, is looking for these themes. And again, uh, maybe I've made this clear so far, maybe not, but Mark's gospel is treated like the runt of the litter oftentimes. It's, it's the shortest, it's the smallest, it kind of doesn't get the respect it deserves sometimes. And this is true when it comes to themes or theology. Matthew and John are both richly theological books. I mean, there's just, they're so, so good. And Mark it sometimes is treated as if, eh, you know, Mark doesn't really have much in the way of theology. You know, he's sort of second class. In fact, uh, Augustine or Augustine, the church father, the church theologian for the first four centuries, said that Mark is just an abridgment of Matthew. In other words, if you've read Matthew, you don't really, really even need Mark. Nevertheless, I think Mark does have theology, and I think he weaves in themes in a really interesting way. Here's the thing. Whereas Matthew and John are so obvious about their theology, Mark is a lot more subtle. You have to kind of look, and you have to kind of work to find where he weaves these themes in. And when you do, it's very, very rewarding. So what are some of the themes in Mark's Gospels that we're going to look for? Well, number one, and, and if you can even describe it as a theme, is Christ. Christ is the central character of Mark's gospel. His gospel is written to put Jesus on display. The gospel of Mark keeps a steady and unrelenting gaze on Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. Now, this isn't totally unique to Mark, right? The other gospels, in fact, you could make a case that all of the Bible, in some way, is pointing us towards Christ, and it's you know, eventually working out towards him. And so, in, in one sense, yeah, everything is about Jesus. But Mark, in particular, has a way of uniquely putting the spotlight on Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the focus and central character of every single passage except two. Every passage you look at in Mark, it's about Jesus. He's the central character. The only two that aren't directly about Jesus is talking about John the Baptist one of which we read this morning. So in all of it, Jesus is always in the spotlight. He's always filling up the screen, so to speak. Also, look at verse 1. If you're still at Mark chapter 1, he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what it's about. He's the central character. He's what we should be looking for. But then he adds the Son of God. That idea is going to find its way into this book that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He's the son of God in a unique way. That will be something we're going to look for. And it's interesting how in a very subtle way, Mark shows us the son of God. Not like John does, not like Matthew does, but in his own way reveals Christ to be the Son of God. And so this whole book is about Jesus. He is its central theme. But let me, let me point us to a second theme that's pretty prominent, and that is the cross. The cross. 
whole Gospel of Mark is a resolute march to the cross of Jesus. Just consider the the brief 16 chapters. A full one-third to one-half of the book is given over to leading up to the cross in the final week of Jesus' life. A huge portion of Mark is about the crucifixion and the cross. One author I read said it like this, the cross is at the end of the book, and yet its shadow falls across every page all the way to the first verse. Another author said it like this, he described Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. So it's, a, it's about the cross, and everything else is just introduction. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, we said that the gospels bring into focus what the Old Testament predicted. All those prophecies of the Old Testament, all those little snapshots, all kind of merge to form this image that we see in the gospels. Well, in Mark's gospel... The cross itself becomes sort of the lens by which we see Jesus. So all during the, the gospel of Mark, it's all moving towards the cross. When we get to the cross, suddenly it all makes sense. You know, stuff that earlier in the gospel you're saying, why is Jesus doing that? Why is he saying that? Why is he acting that way? And suddenly when we get to the cross, it's kind of like, oh, everything falls into place. Uh, another reason that Mark's gospel is so interesting to me is that Jesus is presented as something of a mystery in this book. You might say, well, how is that the case? Well, we'll see it as we go through. But Jesus does not always act like you would expect him to. He doesn't always do the things you might think that he would do. In fact, sometimes Jesus acts very contrary to what we might expect in Mark's gospel. But again, when we get to the cross, that's what kind of is the key to unlocking all of it. So when we look back over Jesus' life, the cross is always in mind. Third theme, though, that I want to point out is discipleship. Yes, Jesus is the central character. He's in the, in the spotlight. But the disciples are never far away. And we get to see Jesus' life through the eyes of those who followed him. And since this book is the memories of Peter, probably, we get to see discipleship from one who lived it, one-on-one with Jesus. Now, it's easy to see how this theme flows from the focus on Jesus. If Christ is the central character, if he's what it's all about, then what should we do? Answer, we follow him. We become his disciples. The first major act of Jesus' ministry is to call 12 disciples to himself to follow him throughout his ministry. They were going to be firsthand eyewitnesses to his miracles and teaching. In turn, Jesus would send them out to preach and to do likewise, to make disciples. Now, the theme of discipleship kind of grows in the book, but really climaxes in chapter 8, which chapter 8 is sort of the hinge of the entire book of Mark. Not only is it the center point, literally the center, but rather it is also highly significant in the whole unfolding of Mark's story. And right there at the center point is Jesus teaching on what it means to be a disciple. We will see this theme of discipleship. In fact, that is what will tie it together for us in many ways. Because as we study Mark's gospel together, the question that should be on our minds is, if I'm his disciple, what what does that mean? How should I live? How can I imitate and follow Jesus? What does Jesus want me to do? And that's what we're going to see as we study the gospel of Mark.
Now, we've, we've talked about a lot of introductory material and who and what and how and all of those types of things, but I don't want to just leave us with a lot of information. I don't want you to just walk out and say, well, I learned that Mark was nicknamed Stumpfingers today, and that's the only thing that you got out of today's message. So I want to end with lessons from Mark's gospel. I know that could have been like a fourth point if I'd wanted it, but here it is. Lessons from Mark's gospel. What, what do I want us to walk away with? Well, number one, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I'm not just talking about Mark's gospel. I'm talking about your life, my life, the universe, everything. Jesus is the central character. You know, we have this really perverse ability within us to make everything about ourselves, don't we? And it's somewhat natural to us. You know, from the moment we wake up, we're thinking about, I'm hungry. I'm tired. I, I want to do this. Here's what I've got planned for today. And we just automatically go into me mode. And again, uh, some of those things is just natural for us, but everything becomes like that. Everything is all about me. In fact, let me... Let me even convict you a little bit if, if this sticks. But I would dare say that there's a lot of people who go to church and their main thought is me. And going to church is a wonderful thing. But a lot of people go and say, I'm really looking forward to church this morning because I really love these songs. I really get a lot out of that. I really like those people. I really And so church, even a wonderful thing like going to church becomes, what am I going to get out of it today? What's in it for me? Instead of saying, Lord, I want to worship your holy name. I want you to be lifted up. I want you to be exalted. You see, life is about Christ. And I hope, this is my prayer as we study the Gospel of Mark together, that more and more we will have the heart of John the Baptist who said, I must decrease, he must increase. It's all about Jesus. I also want to point out this little lesson for us to walk away with, and that is, number two, be amazed at Christ. Do you know, another little fact for you for the Gospel of Mark, that over 16 times in the book, Mark tell, says that people were amazed, marveled at Jesus, whether it was his teaching, his miracles, uh, something he did or said. People constantly in Mark's gospel are marveling at Jesus, just in utter amazement. I guess my question for us is, how often are we amazed at Christ? He is the most glorious, wonderful, awe-inspiring figure in all of history, in all of the universe. Jesus ought to inspire amazement from us. And yet, I think we're pretty ho-hum about Jesus a lot of the time. And maybe we just don't think about it, or maybe we just sort of get into this, you know, well, Jesus is just sort of always around. He's just a part of my life, and so I don't really give him a whole lot of thought. Instead of stepping back and saying, wow, this great and marvelous Jesus who gave his life for me. I mean, we could talk about all kinds of different characteristics of Jesus his boundless authority, his power and might, his teaching, his love, his compassion and mercy. 
who I just stand back and be amazed at that. A.T. Pearson, a, a preacher from more than 100 years ago, said, he stands absolutely alone in history, in teaching, in example, in character, an exception, a marvel, and he is himself the evidence of Christianity. So I want to give you this assignment, and I'd like you to do it today. I know some of you in your mind might think to yourself, well, I'll do this tomorrow. Don't do it tomorrow. Do it today. Take 10 minutes of your day. I know that's not a long time, but take 10 minutes of today. And, and I would even suggest just set up a stopwatch just to make sure you give it the, the due time. 10 minutes of your day and just ponder and be amazed at Jesus, his love, his compassion, his goodness. And, and if, you're, if you're having a struggle thinking like, I'm trying to get into this and I'm trying to get in the right mindset, Sit down and read Mark chapter 5, beginning to end, just to jump start and, and think through that passage. Really read it, and then take 10 minutes to just, in a moment, just be amazed at the Christ who died for you, who is infinitely glorious. Trust me, that will be 10 minutes well spent. Let us be amazed at the Son of God presented to us in the Gospel of Mark.